have your Bible, the, the plan tonight is to finish up the 20th chapter of Revelation or the Apocalypse of Jesus Christ tonight. And our focus once more is going to be on the end of the millennium. There is here a description of the thousand years that John has shown, and what happens at its end is the context of our passage tonight, once again, like it was the last time. So let's read our text, and we'll read where we, we'll begin reading where we started last time, which is at verse 7, and we'll read through the end of the chapter, and then we'll pray, asking the, for the Lord's help. So God's Word says, And when the thousand years are ended... Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. And their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and sufficient word. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we need you. And as we come to this sobering text, we are comforted, for one, knowing that You are in control of all things, and the end is already known and decreed and written uh, from your point of view, Lord. But we ask that you would help us to be discerning, that we might rightly understand your word, and therefore live in such a way also that would glorify you and lead to our common good and our enjoyment of you as we live in your world. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, wars and rumors of wars. You know, it is amazing how fast things can change in the span of two weeks. It was just you know, two weeks ago that we considered verses 7 through 10 in this section. And if you remember, and we just read it again, that that, that section describes the release of Satan from his prison. It was called an abyss, uh, an apocalyptic language in the opening verses of the chapter. An event which is clearly shown to happen at the end of the millennium, or you know, the end of this age. And now today... Uh, with events transpiring as they are in the Middle East between Israel and Hamas, it's popular to see Christians and social media uh, speculating about the events in correlation with what the Bible says. Some even saying that now this means that we are in the end times, which is a bit hard to understand in some sense, remember, because the teaching of the Bible is, is very clear, and that is that we have been in the end times since the, the writing of the New Testament books. Uh, of course, though, With news in the Middle East, it sets off something of an eschatological fury among evangelical believers. 
And mind you, you know, you need to be careful with what we hear and see in the news today. It wasn't that long ago when the news used to do this silly thing called a reporting. But now it seems like, you know, in, in many ways, their goal is to drive an agenda, to push a narrative. And so we have to be careful with what we believe and see. We need to be discerning with these matters about what is true. And we especially should be discerning when it comes to what God has told us in his holy word concerning these things as well. Because just last week I saw that many pastors online changed the directions of their sermons to preach about the importance of the war that is taking place over at the Gaza Strip right now. And perhaps you know, that will expand elsewhere. We'll see. I hope not. Now, there are atrocities happening, certainly, that's clear, but how do we, or what do we make sense of it all? And how do we make sense of it all biblically? That's what matters to us, isn't it? Uh, what the Bible says here. And we need, let, we need to let the Bible speak for itself and not let a system coupled with current events drive our interpretation. So, with that said, are we to be concerned then about the Muslim Dome of the Rock being demolished and a third Jewish temple being constructed there? Biblically concerned, I mean. As in, it, as in that event being descriptive of a timeline of events that we are told about in the Bible? Are the things that are happening in the Middle East right now a fulfill, fulfillment of Ezekiel 38 or Isaiah 17, these prophecies about Gog and then Damascus? And that soon then, with all of these things, we'll have a rapture, and it'll be the start of the millennium. Uh, those are things that all, all of those things, mind you, are things that I saw people talking about online just over this past week. And so briefly, let me just remind you of what we saw being described in the vision that the Apostle John saw in Revelation 7 through 10, what we were in last time. And the first thing to remember, which is very, very important, is that with verses 7 through 15 in chapter 20, and remember, chapter 20 is the millennium chapter. It's the only chapter in the Bible that mentions the word, the, the thousand years, the millennium. There's other parts of Scripture, of course, that speak about this time period, but this is the one where it, it mentions that specific term, a thousand years. Um, that the, the thing that we have been seeing here is that this is all dealing... Um, very importantly, and especially with, the, we've been asking, what I'm trying to say is that we've been asking when do the events that happen here in chapter 20 happen in correlation to the second coming of Christ. And so we see, and this is important again, is that with verses 7 through 15, we are dealing with things at the end of the millennium. Look again at verse 7. It says, when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released and then you have this battle, which is described as Armageddon in chapter 16, 1616, with Gog and Magog. It's the end of the millennium that is spoken here, though. It's not the beginning. And we consider Revelation 19 and 16, which speak of the same event. Notice, I mean, it says it's the end. It's when the thousand years were ended, when the millennium was ended. And so Revelation is simply recapitulating and giving us more information to know with greater clarity that God is victorious and is working all things according to the counsel of his will. Remember, recapitulation is just the literary technique of showing the same event but from a different angle, a different perspective. And it does that a number of times in Revelation. And further, this is apocalyptic language, remember? It's filled with symbolism and allegory and it's drawing upon themes from the Old Testament. Ezekiel 38 and 39, with its prophecy about Gog and Magog, are not meant to 
and we talked about this last time, are not meant to make us think of a specific war at a specific place near the time of the end. That's actually physically impossible, if you remember. But it's in reference to the victory that God will have over what seems like insurmountable odds against those who are opposed to the church the world over. Gog and Magog are not about one or two specific nations. Not here in Revelation. It is reference to all of the nations that are opposed to the church all over the world. All the kings of the earth being gathered against the camp of the saints. And just like God miraculously had victory over Gog and Magog in Ezekiel 38 and 39, remember that was Assyria really, and Israel was restored in that moment. Well, God, the point here in Revelation 20 is to say that God will have victory at the end of the millennium. And true Israel, the church, will be victorious. And we haven't got there yet, but we'll see in Revelation 21 and 22 descriptions of the new heavens and the new earth, which draw very closely upon the vision that Ezekiel saw of a temple, only for Revelation 21 to say with clarity that there is no physical temple. And the temple language is representative of God's communion with his people. And so what I'm going to say now about that is this. Is I don't know if a third temple will be built in the Middle East and animal sacrifices will be reinstated. It could happen. It's in the realm of possibilities. But if it does happen, this much I do know, it has nothing to do with the second coming of the Lord Jesus. And let's not forget, by the way, that, again, I mentioned this a moment ago, that the question we have been asking here with verses 1 through 10 in this chapter is when does this happen in relation to the second coming of Christ? And over and over again, with each specific detail, we see that Christ returns after the events of the millennium. He returns post the millennium, which fits with all millennials and then, and not before the millennium or, or pre the millennium. And what that means is clearly is that we are not reading here in our text, in our passages, or anywhere in Scripture, about a temple building that will exist during a future millennium which comes after Christ's return. If a temple gets constructed in the Middle East in our lifetime or in the future, uh, and it corresponds to Solomon's temple, we should understand that as delusion, as false religion, and as a rejection of the new covenant and not if the fulfillment of prophecy. It's not what Ezekiel 40 and the following are speaking of, and we see nothing of that in Revelation 20 and following. And we'll see that over the next uh, couple chapters. With this description of war and a final battle in which Jesus defeats his enemies and the enemies of the church that we have in 7 and 10, which corresponds, if you remember, to 19, 11 through 21, and 16, 17 through 21, as well as the text about the 7th, trumpet and the sixth and the seventh seal as well. And chapter 18 sets the stage for the event. With the description here, we have the final battle. And it happens again at the end of the millennium, as 27 reminds us and makes very clear. So wars and rumors of wars, that would be descriptive of this whole present evil age that we are living in. And the war at the very end, in which the enemies of the Lord are all over the world, positioning themselves against the church, which 1616 calls Armageddon, which, by the way, remember, the Bible nowhere even actually says the battle of Armageddon. Armageddon, or Har Megiddo, is speaking about a mountain. And that's what it means, remember, the Mount of Megiddo. And it's a symbolic of the world coming against the church to harm her. But at the end, 
It won't be very much of a war as we like to think of what war is because it will consist of our Lord and Savior returning and vanquishing them all at his coming with the breath of his mouth as it is described in 2 Thessalonians, as fire from heaven, as Revelation 29 says, and as acts of God and God alone, as, act, as chapter 16 describes. This battle is over at the coming of the rider on the white horse that we saw in chapter 19. And then comes the events of 2011 through 15, which round out the events at the end of the millennium. So what do we make then of the events transpiring right now in the Middle East? Well... Honestly, nothing special. It is just the usual things for life in this age. Be discerning, friends. Pray for an end to the violence. Pray for the salvation of the elect through these events. Remember that there are true churches in Israel and in Palestine, and that this event and the countless others that have taken place over the past 2,000 years are meant to make us remember that there will be a day when there will be a final assault. And it's not an assault against a geopolitical nation like Israel. And remember, you know, Israel, the nation, is just as much as the beast as the United States is the beast, but against the church, the world over. And then at that time, Revelation 20, 9 through 10, remember what it says, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and of sulfur where the beast was and the false prophet were, and they were tormented day and night forever and ever. But there is even more that will happen on this time. It's going to be a a busy day, I guess we can say, a full day perhaps. I don't know if we should understand it really as a full 24-hour period, to be honest, or if these events will span a a longer period of time that could be described as a final day figuratively. So consider, for example, John 12, 48. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Or, Mark, or Matthew twelve thirty six. I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Or Matthew twenty four thirty six, which we see referring first to 70 AD and the destruction of the temple, and then that as a type of the end. But notice here we have a clue as to it possibly being a symbolic reference, being that two different units of measurement are given. Verse 36, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven or the Son, but the Father only. And so what we have in these closing verses of Revelation 20 is a more detailed telling of what will happen on that day of judgment that's mentioned elsewhere in Scripture and even elsewhere in Revelation. What will happen with humanity after Satan is defeated and regulated to eternal torment with the beast, you know, that unholy trinity. And so Revelation 20, 11 through 15 describes the final judgment. That is a judgment of image bearers of God. And that would mean that there is importance for who is our federal head at this time. Who is our covenantal representative, as Romans 5 puts it in other words. Is it Adam, the first man, and the covenant of works, who failed and ushered in sin and, and guilt and judgment for all? Or is it Christ Jesus and the covenant of grace, who was victorious and brought forth forgiveness and righteousness and justification for all that are in him? And the picture 
picture that we are given here is, is awesome. It is gripping. The glory of God is on display in such a way that I think humanity has not seen since the cross and perhaps not since the flood before that. We read in verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. The throne is a, is a great throne. We're made to consider the, the grandeur and the, the majesty of God. And it's through this apocalyptic language. It's a, it's a white throne symbolizing the purity and the holiness of the one who sits upon it. And that makes sense. Remember, Christ Jesus is said to return on a white cloud. He's the rider on a white horse. It's on Revelation 19. It's white, symbolizing that the judgments that are about to be passed from it are perfectly just and right. They are holy judgments. They are true and right judgments, in other words. But greater than the throne itself is the one who is said to sit on the throne. Him who was seated on it. Or the one who sat on the throne is a familiar phrase for us in this book. It's a description of Yahweh, of God Almighty, in all of his sovereign authority. And, and it really even goes back into the Old Testament, especially in the Psalms. You see that phrase quite often. It goes back to the first chapter of Revelation and especially to the fourth and fifth chapter of this book. And that's important because here in the context of chapter 20, John just says he sees him who is seated on it. Uh, he doesn't give us any attempt to describe what he saw. We're to remember the description that we received of God enthroned in earlier verses, though. So, Revelation 4, 2 through 3 and 5, says that once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had a, the appearance of an emerald. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. You get the, the feel of the glory and the majesty of what John saw here and how, how it's not easy to describe really the glorious things he saw. He's, he's at his limit of language as he attempts to describe the glory and the splendor of God enthroned there by using things that are familiar to us. And then in Revelation twenty eleven, we find this intriguing statement. From his presence... The earth and the sky fled away, and no place was found for them. Here we have a description of the change that will come upon all of creation on the last day. The idea, in part at least, is that God's sovereign majesty is so absolutely overwhelming and impactful that heaven and earth are seen fleeing away from it. They're looking to hide, looking to be replaced, really. We've been given a taste of this event that will come upon all the creation on the last day a few times now in the book of Revelation. Remember, again, this book is constantly recapitulating. It's using symbolic language to explain the things that aren't easy to explain. And so when the sixth seal was opened in Revelation 6, we read that John saw a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. It's 12 through 14, or a little bit longer, 16, 17 through 21. 
when the seventh bowl was poured out, we read, A loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightnings, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there had never been seen since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found, and great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. So what we have being described here at the end of the millennium is through judgment language that, like we read through in 16 and 6 here just a moment ago, is really the renovation of creation, a changing, a renovation of, of the earth and the heavens that the New Testament elsewhere sheds light on too. So using a couple different ways to, in different places to describe the same type of thing. Consider what is said in 2 Peter 3, 7, and 10. There, speaking of the same event, where this event is described as a dissolution, a dissolving of the elements. Verse 7, But by the same word the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. Verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So see what's being communicated here, is that the old is passing away, and the new is coming. And Howard Hendrickson <clears throat> says at, th- at this point that or just Hendrickson, not Howard Hendrickson, but he says that the destruction or annihilation, or the destruction that happens here at the final judgment is not an annihilation, but it's a renovation of the universe that is indicated here. Matthew's gospel speaks of this day as a renewal or a regeneration. Matthew 19, 28, Jesus says to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world... When the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. We'll see that a little bit later, again in chapter 21 as well. The Apostle Peter, in an early sermon in Acts 3, speaks of it all as a restoration of all things. He says in verse 21, Whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. And then perhaps the most well-known, it's, spoken of this renovation as a deliverance from the bondage of corruption. Romans 8.21 That the creation itself will be set free from this bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So whatever this looks like exactly, I'm not sure. But the principle is clear. The first heaven and the earth will pass away. Why? So the new heavens and the new earth will be established. In Revelation 21.1 We read, then I saw new heavens and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. But notice that everything in this passage is coming here to focus upon judgment. For that is the one thing that will happen on the last day, that those not judged or that those not in Christ will be judged and eternally condemned. And those in Christ will pass into this new creation. Friends, this is... This is the event of all events. 
all of redemptive history, uh, you understand, has been boiling up to this event that we are reading about here in Revelation chapter 20. The Son of God consummates his kingdom. The parousia, the second coming of Jesus, which we all want to happen because we know how great the reward is for us that Christ won and earned for us and he gives it to us all by grace. That is what happens here on this last day. Everything's been building to this point. So let's be reminded then of the things that we've seen in Revelation and elsewhere that we've considered in this book concerning this event. So first, prior to the return of Christ, all who belong to Christ will be preserved by Christ in the world as the church finds herself under assault from the evil one. The evil one is active, but he is defeated and he's restrained. The language of Revelation 20 is that he's bound. When Christ is enthroned in heaven with all authority in heaven and earth belongs to him, and he will build his church and he'll preserve his people through it all. And then when we die here in this time period, we go to rule and reign with him, as 24 through 6 said. The beast, which is the government opposed to Christ and Christianity, and the false prophet, that is, other religions and corrupt versions of Christianity, and the harlot named Babylon, who symbolizes the seductions of the world that we live in, will be used by the evil one to fight against the people of God, to urge men and women to abandon the worship of the one true God and to worship the things of this world instead. And these pressures will continue through this time period till the end. The church then at the end will find herself in unparalleled assault across the world immediately before Christ comes to uh, save her and redeem her because the Lord Jesus will come to rescue his bride. See, for example, Revelation 19, 11 through 21 and 7 through 10, which we have already read this, this evening. And then here's what 1 Thessalonians 4 says will happen at this time. 16 through 17, it says, The dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. You can call that the rapture, if you like, but note, it's not a secret thing, and it's not before the tribulation. This coincides with what we've seen in Revelation 19, 21, and that is that the rest, that means those who those people who are unbelievers, who are gathered to war against Christ and his people, that they will be slain by the sword that comes from the mouth of him who is sitting on the horse, that is Jesus himself. And then all the birds we read will be gorged on their flesh. It's at that same time that we read in the previous verse that the beast and the false prophet were judged and thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur to be tormented forever and ever. And then as well, it's the same event that we read about in 2010, where the devil who had deceived the nations to gather them for battle to go against Christ and his church will be thrown into that same lake of fire and sulfur, and they'll be tormented, all of them there, day and night, forever and ever. And then we have the events that we are reading this, morning, or this evening, that the events and, that are happening will cause the heavens and the earth to flee at the presence of the Lord. It's interesting we read that no place was found for them. It's profound. He's saying that the triumph of God, of our God, will be so complete that it will be total. There's nowhere for them to go. That it's all going to be restored. It's all going to be made new. And then this will coincide with what we read next. That the unrighteous will also be raised from the dead, not to enjoy eternal life, but to go on to eternal destruction. And so we see described all in past tense language here in 11 through 15, all things that will in fact happen in the future. 
The dead, great and small, that is everyone, will stand before the throne and these books will be opened. And the dead will be judged by what is written in the books according to what they have done. The sea will give up the dead who are in it. Death and Hades will give up the dead who are in them. And they will all be judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. 12, 12, 20, 12, 13. And that's the event that our passage tonight describes. It's this final judgment. And then... Death and Hades themselves will be thrown into the lake of fire. And that is the second death. The death that people who are united to Christ will never experience and don't have to fear. And it will be at that time that the new heavens and the new earth are firmly established. And those who belong to Christ will enjoy eternal life in the presence of God and Christ in the new heavens and the earth forevermore. And we'll get into that in chapters 21 and 22. This day... This hour, I I don't know how long empirically all of these things will take, uh, but the language of scripture is that all of these things, they're all happening here at the end of the millennium, not before the millennium, but at the end of the millennium. And that would mean that any eschatological system that inserts some sort of a large gap in between uh, the, the time period of these events and the millennium, whether it be three and a half years, seven years, or a thousand years, that they're really guilty of reading a system into the text. They're not drawing out from the text what the text is saying. And a careful and straightforward reading of the New Testament reveals that all of these things, the bodily resurrection of the just, the rescue of the church, the wrath of God poured out upon the wicked, the eternal destruction of the beast, the false prophet and the dragon, the bodily resurrection of the unjust, the renovation of the heavens and the earth, the great white throne of judgment and the casting of all the wicked along with death itself into the lake of fire will happen when the Lord Jesus returns for his bride, the church. So consider this final judgment as it's described here in Revelation 20. The most immediate question before us, I think, should be this. And that's, you know, who will be judged at the great white throne judgment? And the answer is that all of humanity will be brought forward for judgment by the sovereign Lord upon his throne. But we should be careful Not that all of humanity will be judged and condemned, but that some will be judged as justified as well. And so the scene that we have is set with a description of all humanity standing before God who is seated on his throne. The general resurrection has happened. Then both the righteous and the wicked at at that time are seen here standing in their resurrection bodies. And, And hear me here, okay, because especially with all the stuff we might read online right now in in Facebook and Twitter, nowhere do we see the scriptures teaching that there will be a bodily resurrection for Christians followed by a thousand years after which there will be a bodily resurrection for those who are not in Christ. Instead, the scriptures plainly teach that when the Lord returns at the, the parousia, the second coming, those who are in Christ who are alive will be caught up with him in the air Those who are alive, who belong not to Christ, but are found warring against Christ and his people, will be at that time put to death. But all who are dead will be raised up and stand before God as whole persons. By that I mean body and soul, together. That intermediate state that we spoke of last time will come to an end. And listen to the plain words of Christ Jesus in John 
5, 28-29 concerning this event. He says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. You see, this happens at the same time. There's not a gap in it. And Revelation 20.12 describes the effects of this, generate, of this general resurrection. All of humanity, both small and great, and by that they mean that, that no one's escaping this. You know, the, the homeless man, the most powerful emperor, no one is, is free from this event, is seen by John standing before a great white throne. Verse 13, and we read that the sea gave up the dead who were in it, along with death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. The sea and death and Hades are three ways of referring to the place of the dead. In this present evil age, we experience death. When we die, the soul is separated from the body. The body goes back to the dust. Uh, you know, the soul, if you are in Christ, you go to be with God in heaven. If not, you go to uh, Hades, the, the grave. You know, there's this, this place of torment that is temporary, just like it's an intermediate state, just like heaven is for believers right now as well. But at the end of the time, there will be a resurrection for the dead. The sea, death, and Hades will give up the dead. In other words, there will be a resurrection so that the body and soul of the individual will be reunited, never to be separated again. And notice that in verse 14, death and Hades are personified, and they themselves are said to be thrown into the lake of fire. In other words, death, which is the thing that brings about the separation of body and soul, and then Hades, that is to say the grave, will be no more after the bodily resurrection of the just and the unjust at the end of time. And, and from that point, uh, everybody will exist as whole persons, body and soul, for all of eternity. But where? And so who will be judged at the great white throne of judgment? Well, again, it's all of humanity that is seen there. The resurrection of the dead is taken place, but who will be condemned at the great white throne of judgment? That is a different question that requires a different answer. It's, it is all who are not in Christ that shall be condemned. It is all who are not trusting and resting in Christ Jesus that will be condemned. Notice there are two sets of books used to sort out this large group of humanity, all of humanity. In verse 12 we read, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And so a distinction is made between the books and, a, and the book of life. In verse 15 we read, If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Well, what is this book of life? It is representative, I think. It's, it's not as if God needs a list to know uh, things that he might forget or something like that. But it, it's helping us to understand. And the book is said to contain all of the names of those who belong to Christ in it. The Apostle Paul used the same phrase in Philippians 4.3 when he spoke of some of the saints there. He says, together with Clement and the rest of his fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. These were Christ's followers. Paul said their names were written in the book of life. The phrase, of course, appears in Revelation a number of times. 
3.5, the church in Sardis was encouraged with these words. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. In 13.8, we, we learn there that it is those who are not in the book of life who end up worshiping the beast, who take his mark. And also there in 13.8, we learn that the full title of the book is that it is the, the book of life of the lamb who was slain and it was written before the foundation of the world in other words if your name is there in the book of life friends it's not there because of something you've done but it's there by the decree of god if your name is written in the book of the life of the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world it's there not because you chose christ but it's because god has chosen you it's what the apostle built up from in Ephesians 1 to 2.8, where he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. In 17.8, the same thing is revealed, those not in the book love the beast. And again, the book is said to have been written from the foundation of the world. The phrase, the book of life, appears twice in our text today. And then lastly, it appears in 21. 27, where we find the description of the new Jerusalem, where it says, But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So what determines whose name is in the book of life? What brings that about? What causes that to happen? Well, it's the decree of God that determines it. God's free choice determines it. The book of life was written by God before creation. The book of life was written before anyone was born. The book of life was written before anyone did any good or bad. The book of life symbolizes the, the doctrine of election based on God's foreknowledge and predestination. Again, remember what the apostle said in Ephesians. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Paul, the apostle, says it plainly. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, and he predestined us for adoption to himself through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. The book of Revelation symbolizes that truth with the images of names written in this book of life. Those not found in the book of life are judged according to what is written in the other books. And what is written in those except a record of all that has ever been done. That should be a terrifying thing. Because everything not of faith is sin, we read in Romans 14. What a heavy judgment that is. That is the basis of judgment for those not in Christ. And remember what our deeds would merit. It's, it's the second death, the lake of fire. They are thrown into the lake of fire, we read in verse 15, and recall verse 10. That is a place where torment will be had day and night forever and ever. That is hell. That is what that is. There's nothing fun about it. There's nothing to laugh about it, to joke about it. This is serious, and it's forever. It's the penalty for not loving, in fact, for hating 
the eternal God. And it's not like one goes to hell and is then, you know, remorseful at that point. Nothing in Scripture makes us believe that. But as the torment goes on forever and ever, we are right to think that the sinning of the individual in hell goes on forever and ever. They remain angry at God. Their sin has them there, and that is the way they are choosing even. You see, people who are not in Christ are not simply judged because they were not chosen, because their names are not in the book of life, but because of their life, which may be summed up really as rebellion. Think of Adam's sin in the garden. You might not think it's a big deal, but you'd be sorely mistaken. I'm in choosing to disobey God, he chose to be his own master, even though God gave him everything good that he needed. And his sin made it so that we all would be under the curse that he had earned. And our lives show it. They evidence it. We all sin because we are sinners. Our lives will never meet the standard which God has given. And so verse 12, they were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. This is very significant because it reminds us here that we all deserve condemnation and wrath. That is what we all deserve. Think of what we have done. Brothers and sisters, think of what we still do or the good that we don't do, which we know we should do. We're not for the grace of God in Christ Jesus. We're not for his mercy. Then we would all be hopelessly lost. We're not for God's grace his having determined to save us from eternity past, his having accomplished our salvation through the cross of Christ, his having brought us to faith and salvation by word and spirit, then we too would be judged by what is written in those books containing a record of all of our sins. And who could stand being faced with that? God knows the intentions of our hearts. He hears every word that we speak. He knows even what we think. He sees everything. Nothing is hidden from him, and he remembers all. And that is what these books that are opened are meant to symbolize. That is what those who reject Christ will have before them on the day, the hour of this event. Every thought, choice, action, desire, every wicked thing, God will hold them accountable. That's the record. And tell me, friend, do you want to be judged by that record? It's amazing to me that some men think themselves to be so good or good enough and so righteous that they might actually respond to that saying, you know, I I think I'll do all right if that was the case. You see this in street evangelism all the time. Uh, You talk to people and things are going well at first. Then you ask ultimately or eventually, you know, if you died today, where would you go and why? And most people, at least that I have encountered, would say at that point they'd go to heaven, and the reason being is because they're a good person. And it's, it's heartbreaking. They don't know the standard that God has. The standard of righteousness and goodness which God has is perfect, permanent, and perpetual righteousness. Goodness. And you even have some in the Reformed community who speak of being finally justified on that day because their good works will be in view. That their good works as a Christian will contribute to their place before God or perhaps even in a softer way, just say evidence. And this too leads to all sorts of problems, a legalism and a weak insurance 
in the Christian life as well. But this is what sin does to men. It blinds them to the severity of their own sin and to the glory of God. Men in sin think far too highly of themselves and far too little of God. But they should be reminded that God sees all, that he knows all. He even sees the things that are secret to other men, and he has a record of them, as it were, in a book. But this is why the gospel is such a balm to our soul, friends. This is why I speak of properly distinguishing law and gospel. This is why I often remind us to preach the gospel to ourselves often, daily. Because for those in Christ, this record will not be counted against against them. For Christ has paid the penalty for you. And you who were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross, Colossians 2, 13 to 14. It's like this. When Jesus went to the cross, the books were opened at that time. And Jesus took all the punishment which those records show upon himself. He bore it all, so there would be none left for us. And then, the best part of it all, Christ gives his record to all who believe upon him. When the book is opened up to the name of the one who is trusting in Christ, as it were, the record shows complete faithfulness. It shows perfect, permanent, and perpetual righteousness. Never an evil desire, never a wayward thought. Not a single transgression or iniquity. It shows sinlessness. It's the great exchange. Christ has paid our sin debt, and we have been clothed in his righteousness. Clothed victoriously in robes of white garment, garment, as Revelation has said before. It's why the apostle says in 1 Corinthians 1, he says, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Why? It's because we owe everything to God. And that certainly includes our salvation as well. So let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do always need you, Lord, and we are especially thankful for your sustaining grace that we know will take us all the way uh, to this great white throne of judgment to have us accepted in the beloved, to know that you will say, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Not because of our best efforts here on the earth, Lord, though we do pray for grace that we may strive to be more holy and to do greater good works, but to know that you will say that because you see the complete works of Christ given to us so that when you see us, you see the glorious and beloved eternal Son and the work that he accomplished to save us and redeem us. Lord God, we do pray that you would help us to take serious these texts about eternal judgment. We pray that uh, people would turn from their sin and that they would find the offer of salvation and grace in Christ. And we know that all of those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world will. So give us strength to, to tell others of this glorious good news. We pray, Lord, that the events in the Middle East right now would come to a quick end, Lord, that you would preserve life, that you would bring about mercy in these things and and justice as well, Lord. And even though, God, we understand that sometimes justice is not always met uh, temporally or in time, we know that certainly on that final day, justice will be fully met. 
And so we have great confidence to know, Lord, that you are sovereign upon your throne and doing what is right. May we grow in trust of you and love of you. May you always be exalted. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.